Uh, we are currently working our way through the book of Acts in a sermon series entitled, You Will Be My Witnesses. Last week, we focused on a, a pretty massive piece of text. We looked at 432 to 511. Um, I want to thank you guys for being extremely gracious with, uh, with me. For I, I mean, I, I don't normally preach that long. And I'd made a joke before the service. Oh, I'm going to preach for an hour and a half today, joking. Uh, yeah. yeah. It was prophetic, yeah. But here's the beauty. You know, right now, some of you are thinking, there wasn't beauty in that. My butt was killing me from these chairs. Um, but here's the beauty in it, that, that as I realized I was going so long, I started to feel really bad about that up here. There was like a little bit of a battle going on with me, like, dude, what are you doing? And uh, you guys were like, just focused. Nobody was leaving. Sometimes that happens. People start going out in the other room, walking around or something. Or, and uh, it's just exciting to, to be in a fellowship with people who love God's word. And um, who, <laughs> I was talking to Ray Merrill last week about it. I said, Ray, I apologize for that, you know. And Ray said, dude, I completely lost track of time. And wasn't watching the clock or even really felt anything about that. So, and, you know, that's no excuse to, to go really long. But I just thought that was really cool. And that's kind of a testimony to actually who we are as a church in that we love the Word of God and we love the preaching of the Word of God. And if it goes a little long or whatever, you know, we're wanting to be fed, right? And so, really cool. But thank you for the grace there. Um, I didn't get any emails. That's primarily because I haven't put my email address out there for you. But... Um, <laughs> Watch, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get him. So, uh, what's that? Yeah. Oh, we can send them now. Uh, so, thanks for the grace. We covered a really, really big section, and I learned a lot through that section. Um, but, you know, what did we see through that section just as a context for today? We, we saw another vivid image or display of the early church on mission, how it was living out the faith biblically by being unified and generous, and it was just this, again, a beautiful portrait of the church, of the early church, and then Ananias and Sapphira step into the picture, they were filled with sin and uh, essentially tried to bring their sin into the larger body, but they were stopped by the Holy Spirit uh, through the apostles. And uh, tragically, you know, these people were believers and all that, but tragically they um, were really presented with an opportunity to kind of come clean, I suppose, and to do the right thing, but they continued to lie and remain in their sin, and they continued to try to bring that into the church, and God pretty much um, chastened them to the point of striking them down, which he will do with his own children if necessary, or whenever he desires to do so, but pretty sad, but that's what happened. They kind of, the church was this amazing thing moving forward, and then all of a sudden, they step into the picture, and, and then they were struck down for their sin, and then the fruit of that was that the, there was fear that um, came upon the rest of the body of believers, and then also uh, into the community, into non-believers and stuff. Now, as we begin this morning, I believe that the Holy Spirit is directing us to look a little closer at Ananias and Sapphira again. We're not going to go back and go through all that text, 
but I'll be constantly reference, referencing it. Um, we're going to focus on how their sin actually did affect the church. Last week, through my study, I was pretty convinced that um, they were stopped before having an effect on the church. But after studying today's text this week for a couple of days, really, really hard text for me to study because it, it just didn't seem like there was a whole lot there. You know, just, oh, they're performing wonders and miracles. And a lot of people were getting healed and all that. Great stuff, right? But how do you preach on that for a while? You got four verses and that's it. But I realized that through this study this week in this section that their sin actually did have an effect on the church in, in, a, in a multitude of ways. And so... Um, we will study today our text, and we will kind of be going back and forth to, to what happened with them. And, and then I'm going to show you how their sin affected the church through our own text today. It's kind of weird. It's like if you look at our text, it doesn't indicate any of that, but it does. You just have to look real carefully. And um, you have to study slowly, right? I mean, so often we just get into this mode of reading and all that, and we're just blowing through stuff, and yeah, we're extracting things, but if you just slow down and really examine the Word of God, and if you're in a particular text and you look before the text and you look after the text, there's your context, and so that's actually ultimately what gives your section its meaning and depth. And so I had to go back to get meaning and depth for this text, but we're going to look at some effects that were caused. They're not plain to see in the text, but... We'll analyze it, and you'll see them for yourself. So, with that being said, I'll read the text, and uh, we'll pray again, and we'll begin to examine it together. Acts 5, 12 to 16. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them. That's interesting. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more, it says actually in my translation, it says, and more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits. And it says they were all healed. Amazing text. But how do you make the parallel with Ananias and Sapphira? Watch and see, it's amazing. Let's pray. Father, open our hearts and minds in this very moment. God, um, I had a tremendous amount of difficulty studying this text this week. And I had acid reflux and all kinds of things that were going on and, and I couldn't focus and I couldn't concentrate and I suspect that it was really more of a spiritual thing than anything else. And even in this very moment, I've got a clogged ear and it's messing with me and, and, and it, Father, it could just be that Satan absolutely, I don't know if it could be, I think it is, that he just does not want this sermon preached. He does not want these points made, these things extracted and... Um, but you do, Father, and your spirit prevails over the enemy. And so, God, I pray that there would be a prevailing over the enemy now amongst our congregation here today, that the cares of this world and the distractions and the things and whatever they are, God, would just drift away, as that song said, just fade away into the background. Help us to be focused in this moment 
Lord, protect our hearts and minds now. Open them to you. God, you desire to speak right into us with transformational power, God. Uh, to take us from this point to this point. And that ultimately is what the Word of God does. And so may you do that now, Jesus. Protect us in this moment. May we hear from you, Christ, and know you better. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's begin to make some of these parallels. Let's look at 12 and 13 together. You guys got your note things ready and all that? Maybe you've got a phone that you're taking notes on, or maybe you've got you know, an iPad, or maybe you've got a note paper, or maybe you're like Bruce, you've got a yellow pad instead of an iPad. We call it the Y-pad. That's how Bruce rolls. Um, but make sure, please, if you have an electronic device, that it can't go off or ring or cause any trouble, because that's always the weirdest thing for me when I'm preaching. Oh, you know, all of a sudden, doo -doo 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 -doo, you're like, who is that? <laughs> so please turn them off, but you can use them. Now, many signs and wonders, verse 12, now many signs and wonders were regularly done, um, done among the people by the hands of the apostles, it says, and they were all gathered together in Solomon's portico. And then 13 says, none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Now, prior to Ananias and Sapphira, prior to that incident, prior to that experience when they came in with their sin and did what they did, prior to the Ananias and Sapphira incident, the apostles were engaged in their ministry, in gospel ministry, by doing what? By preaching about the resurrection of Jesus Christ in boldness. We see that clearly in 433. We covered that text last week. So prior, prior to Ananias and Sapphira entering into the picture, entering into the narrative, the apostles themselves were on mission. They were doing what they were commanded to do. They were testifying to the resurrection of Jesus, which is the cornerstone of the Christian faith. The resurrection is without it, we're fools, the scripture says. So they were out testifying to this. They were out testifying to this. Things were moving right along in the church. Ultimately, God was being glorified. And we saw something really cool in our text last week that said that great grace was among or on all the people. God was blessing the people. The church was on mission. The apostles were doing their ministry. And God was being glorified because that's the ultimate cause of our ministry. And then God was pouring out grace and favor on the whole church. These things were happening. It was a beautiful picture, right? Remember that first section? It was like, dude, that's so the church that we want to be. And that's, we want to be unified and we want to be... Uh, uh, generous to one another, and we want to be focused on these things. We go back to Acts 2, 42 to 47. They were devoted to the teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, communion, all these things. That's the image that we are given prior to Ananias and Sapphira. And then, I call it the anomaly. The anomaly came. Ananias and Sapphira. The anomaly was two people, unfortunately. And then the storyline, the narrative of Acts the historical narrative of the Bible here, the storyline shifted off of the church on mission narrative, which is what we've literally been marveling at for so many weeks now. The storyline shifted off of that church on mission narrative and it shifted onto two self-absorbed, self-seeking people who were about to infect the church with sin and deception. 
Once Ananias and Sapphira were out of the picture, once they were dealt with, their sin was dealt with, they were judged by God. Some of us might think that was a bit harsh how it was dealt with, but God's the one who makes the decisions. But once they were dealt with, the church on mission narrative actually picks back up. That's what we see happening in verses 12 to 13. Before Acts 5, 1 to 11, church on mission, all these amazing things are happening, apostles during the ministry. Then we have an 11-verse pause in the ministry of the apostles and essentially the mission of the church. And then in our text, we see in verse 12, right after Ananias and Sapphira are dealt with, the church gets back on mission. The narrative picks back up where it left off. You see the pause there? Now think about that for a moment. Those two people were able to create a pause in the ministry of the apostles. Literally, in the mission of the church. Which means that sin is incredibly pervasive. Meaning that it has not just an effect on an individual or a couple of individuals or whatever, but it can have a, an effect on the body or just your family. It just broadens out. Sin is very pervasive. We tend to think that, well, my sin is my sin, and I'm dealing with it or whatever, and it really doesn't harm anyone else but me, so therefore it's okay or whatever. But sin is pervasive. It has an effect on everyone around, and ultimately it has an effect on the church. And this is made so clear in this text, in the storyline, in the narrative. If you just go back to the section before Ananias and Sapphira, you look at what they did, and then you look at afterwards how the church picked back up. There was a pause created, most certainly. Now, <laughs> verse 12 shows that the apostles went back to doing what they were commanded to do by working signs and wonders that were meant to authenticate their testimonies about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Bottom line, Ananias and Sapphira's sin created a pause in the church on mission narrative because it created a pause in the ministry or mission of the church. I want to take some time flushing this out and illustrating the effects that their sin had in that pause. I want to spend some time illustrating how pervasive and impactful their sin was on the body of Christ. And it's incredible, because last week we'd have thought that it was just headed off at the pass, wouldn't we? Oh, no, it, it, they, the apostles stopped it before it could have any sort of effect. Absolutely not true. I'm going to spend a little time identifying four effects that their sin had on the church, and that's how we'll do it. It's going to be really practical, very pragmatic, simple, and that's okay. <clears throat> Effect number one, their sin caused a shift of focus. The apostles had to focus on Ananias and Sapphira rather than on the mission of the church, rather than on their ministry, which was to preach the gospel and to authenticate the gospel with signs and wonders. They had to stop doing what they were doing to go over and deal with these two individuals. Now, some would say that Phil, Ananias, and Sapphira, what they were doing was just as much the mission of the church as what the apostles were doing, dealing with the saints like this when saints get involved in sin and try to, you know, drag it into the church. That's just as much gospel ministry as, as, you know, 
going out and preaching the gospel in all nations. And I would say to some degree, dealing with the saints and their sin is part of the gospel ministry. There's no doubt about it. But at the same time, two people who were filled with the Holy Spirit and power, they were new creations in Christ, who actually had the power within them to have mastery over sin to some degree, actually, at this point, come in and shift the focus. People that should be responsible for themselves, being able to have some mastery over this stuff, they cause the focus to shift off the mission of the church, which is progressing and moving onto them. Because they were trying to do something that they shouldn't have been trying to do. And if they had the Spirit of God in them, there's no way that they could have believed what they were doing was right. Oh, they may have, you know, suppressed the Holy Spirit to some degree, and he was just whispering, this is wrong, this is wrong, tell the truth. And maybe they couldn't hear him because of that. But the reality is, if you have the Holy Spirit, if you're a truly regenerated, new birth Christian, and you have the Holy Spirit in you, he's going to be on you. And sometimes he's going to be on you like a badger or a pit bull. I mean, that's what he does to me at times. Have you ever, like, been ready to engage in something that you shouldn't have done, and, and then right there there's that sweet calling saying, don't do it. What do you, don't do that. Don't, usually it's that simple and subtle, right? Just don't, no, 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 no. What are you doing? You're doing it, you know? How many oh darn it's has the Holy Spirit said in us? Darn it, you know? Ultimately, their sin caused a shift in focus in the church. Why? Because the apostles had to focus on them, dealing with them. Two people who had the Holy Spirit should have known better than to try to lie and deceive and do these things, had to shift onto them. Um, It's seen just in the narrative. I mean, the author Luke (laughs) shifted his his focus off of the church on mission narrative to Ananias and Sapphira, did he not? Uh, Yeah, it's meant to be, and God ordained it to be this way. We get all that, but it's like, man, you've got this beautiful story that you've written, and then Luke says, but, and then we have 11 verses of train wreck. And then he fires back up, and then they were out doing miracles and wonders. The storyline, the way in which he wrote it, he recorded it the way that he was supposed to, but it shows that he had to focus on something other than this church on mission and all that. And think about this for a moment. Think about church folks. Think about church people. Think about how, in light of what happened, how they probably became focused on the incident rather than on the mission of the church doesn't say it in the text, but it certainly infers it, does it not? Think about that for a moment. When we hear about something like that exploding, you know, whoa, yeah, maybe we, we become a little more fearful of God or we're more reverent or whatever. That's the great fruit of it. But at the same time, how much time do we spend talking to others about it? And in some cases, it's even gossip. Can you believe what they did? What morons? <laughs> I'm addicted. You know what I mean? <laughs> You're, just, you're bad too, you know, but how much time do people spend talking about these kinds of things? When these people, in fact, have been saved, sanctified, and given a precious mission that they're to be on, according to Matthew 28, that's where your focus is supposed to be if you're a believer, not on what these two people did. So how much time do you think? The church is big at this point. I suspect that a lot of people were talking about this. Oh, great fear came upon them, no doubt, but I guarantee you there were all kinds of little whisperings, all kinds of little statements made, and a lot of them were to catapult these people. That's often what we do, right? When we make statements about others, we're just trying to make ourselves look better than them. How much of that was going on? 
How much of that happens in the church today? I can think of probably at least a couple of dozen people who left the last church that I was at because they got entangled in sin and they were working on reconciling and, and these different things, but it was the sheep that drove them out because of how much they just flapped their chops about them. And these sheep should have been focused on the mission of God, which is Matthew 28, taking the gospel to every nation, making disciples, teaching them all that Christ commanded. And so it's easy for us to deduce that church folks got mixed up in this thing. They caused a shift in focus by the apostles. Oh, okay, we're going to start doing miracles and wonders tomorrow. Let's deal with them. So they had to shift over and deal with these two folks that were trying to, you know, poison the church. The author had to shift on to this other thing. It's okay. And church folks, there's no doubt that they lost their focus on gospel ministry. They had to have. Not all of them, but some of them gave in to chatter about it and talking about it. And praise God they didn't have Facebook back then. Can you imagine? Oh my, how many, oh, you know? How many little updates? Buffoons, you know, I mean, and then, and then there'd be all these little, you know, like 85 comment chats on it. This is why you don't do what they did. Oh, blah, 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 blah. And I'm glued to my stinking computer. And oh, blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, my neighbors are perishing. Oh, blah, blah, you know? Can you imagine the blogs? Oh, man. Point is that their sin was pervasive enough. It had enough of a, uh, an effect on the church to cause a shift in focus. Serious, serious stuff. Effect number two their sin caused a consumption of time. You know, we only have so much time in each day. And time is precious. Time is short. Our lives are like a vapor. And if we're in the church and Christians, we're on mission, and we only have so much time to fulfill that mission personally and collectively... And, and what happens when they sin, two Christians should know better, they get themselves engaged in this stuff, all of a sudden time has to be shifted. It is shifted off of the mission of the church onto dealing with them, onto having to minister to two people who have the Holy Spirit, who have been saved and sanctified and who are new creations. Dealing with them consumed time as it does always in the church. Again, the point could be made that dealing with them and believers' sin is part of gospel ministry, and I think it is to some degree. But how many of you guys have ever dealt with a person who's a Christian who, um, it, you know, I don't mean to sling hash or stones at them, but just consume an enormous amount of your time because of their sin? They just keep doing the same thing over and over and over. I've spent... Somebody said earlier, Bruce said, I spent 20 years dealing with a guy like that. I spent two years dealing with somebody in particular. I won't say who it is. I mean, it was like this was the area of struggle, and there was great grace and patience given and, and love and exhortation and encouragement, but that sin went away for a couple of months, then it came back, and then it went away for a couple of months, then it came back, and then it went away for years. How much time did that one person, I'm not complaining, I love the person, but how much time did that one person consume from me when God has said, Phil, you're on mission in the church? And quite frankly, I think God says very clearly to us, according to the statutes of biblical discipline, because there is actually a disciplinary process in Scripture, 
you're only supposed to deal with that person up to a, a limit. You're not supposed to keep yourself in a cycle with them forever and ever and ever. Number one, because it'll, it's toxic to you. Number two, it destroys the mission that I've given you, which is the mission of the church. You're spending all your time dealing with so-and-so, and he doesn't get it, and he doesn't care, and he doesn't want to get it. How much time do we spend investing into people that don't get it and don't change? How much time is consumed? How much time is consumed in the church as a whole dealing with the saints who keep giving into the same things over and over and over, who have the Holy Spirit, who have been regenerated, who have been made new, who have power. One of the great questions that I've asked in, when I'm in those scenarios is, I, God, is this person really a believer? You know, really? This person, this person, they're claiming it and they're doing all these things, but they also keep doing this over and over and over and over, and it is literally killing me. But we can't judge the heart truly, right? We can't see the heart. So, you know, if we have someone who proclaims to be a Christian, then we try and try and try and keep going and keep going and keep going. But in our text, we can see that time had to be shifted over onto them. We left the focus of the ministry, the mission, and now we've got to spend time. And in the text, it's 11 verses of dealing with them in particular. Effect three, their sin caused a consumption, or I would say a depletion of physical energy. You know, you only have so much energy. And, you, and you, if you're pouring it into the ministry of the gospel, and, and that would mean in your family and in your community and in your church and beyond, that takes an enormous amount of energy to stay on mission, right? That's why we have to have the Holy Spirit to do it, because we can't do that in our own strength. But think about what happens when an Ananias and Sapphira come down the pike, and now you have to shift all your energy into them, or at least some of it. ha. <laughs> Have you ever been locked in with somebody that you've cared about and you've been trying to help them and they've just thoroughly exhausted you because of what they keep doing over and over and over? I mean, I, I used to think that pounding nails because I was a carpenter and then I started doing electronics and that it was all manual labor and it was hard work. And I used to come home sweaty and tired and irritated and all that. And I used to think, you know, someday after I got saved, someday I'll become a pastor and that'll be just a breeze. I want to go back to pounding nails most of the time. Really? That's easy. You know, dealing with, with people and their emotions, and it is, it is so taxing, you know. It, it's just a difficult thing. And, and you don't have to be just a pastor to have to feel that depletion of energy. Just do life with Christians. Do life with non-Christians, you know. Wow! But do it with Christians. And again, the thing that keeps coming back to your mind is I'm having to pour out all this focus all this time and all this physical energy, which I don't have a whole lot of, and the older I get, the more of it seems to be fleeting. At 42, I feel like, you know, and that's nothing. Bruce is like 200. He's like Methuselah, right? 969, right? But you start asking yourself, you know, good night. Look at all of this focus and time and, and energy, and it's going into this person who won't change, you know, or doesn't want to change or, or whatever it is. Interesting. A lot of energy goes into the mission of the, of the church. A lot of energy gets diverted from that, from pressing and moving and battling and fighting with the gospel forward in this 
treacherous, lost, depraved, sinful world, and we have to take that energy and then point it in another direction towards a couple of people that should be on mission with us. And yet they're, they're not on mission, man. We become their, you know, they become our mission. Well, I'm going to help them. And, you know, we say in recovery ministry or whatever, I'm going to, I got to fix them now. I got to pour out all this juice trying to fix them. And we know in recovery ministry, the gospel's the only thing that does anything, you know. But man, focus, time, energy. And then this one, not really illustrated in the text, but I think that it's there. Effect four would be their sin had to have caused emotional pain for their families. They were killed and used as an illustration to strike fear in the church. That's my mom and dad. Can you imagine the emotional pain that was inflicted upon their families because of their sin and because of their judgment and because of their level of discipline? Can you imagine? Imagine if this is your brother, Ananias is your brother, and now you walk around and you're in college and, you know, they're going, hey, your brother's the one that got jacked up for trying to lie and bring it into the church. <laughs> yeah. He was dumb. You know, I mean, what, what do you say? I mean, just think about the impact, the death. They were put in tombs by young men. Do you think that there was a graveside service or something there at some point that somehow... Families came together and mourned over the loss of their loved ones who did something that they should have known better than to do, who were given opportunities on a way out as recorded in Scripture. Tell the truth, especially with Sapphira. Tell the truth. Did you sell it for this much? Yeah. Given a way out. Can you imagine the impact this must have had on their families? And what about on their church, which was a very large church at this point? We don't think that they had friends in the church? People that were blown away by what happened? I just fellowship with these two this morning. We were at church worshiping God. And then Sunday night, you know, or whatever. Boom! Wow, you don't think that this had an impact on the church? Obviously had an impact on the church emotionally. There were people that were tied to them, friends with them, that were hurt by what happened, by their sin and their actions and these things. But it I mean, for crying out loud, it caused emotional pain. It caused other distractions in the church. It had an effect on the church. And how about their relationships that were in the church and outside of the church? Their friends. Maybe their extended family or whatever. We don't think about those things when we read these kinds of passages, do we? Because they're not really there in the Scripture. Because the point is the point is the point. But in context, may we not believe that their effect didn't have some emotional painful cause their sin caused emotional pain in their families, in the church, and in their relationships. When you combine these things together, when you look at these four effects, and I'm certain that there were far more than this, but these are the four that I looked at. When you combine these things, you end up with a church that puts its focus, time, and energy into rescuing believers who already have the Holy Spirit and the power to deal with sin and to make right choices rather than staying on mission by reaching the lost with the gospel of Jesus Christ, ultimately, the sin of Ananias and Sapphira, it distracted the church from its mission. It distracted the apostles from their mission. Now, what does that mean? We're sinners, and we're prone to sin. But I think what it means to us is that we need to be, we need to be very aware of that reality of how pervasive sin is and how much of an effect it can have 
on the whole thing, on the church as a whole, on our local body. If one of you guys goes ballistic in sin, it's going to have an effect on everyone here. It's going to. It's going to have an effect on your pastor. It's going to have, first, it's going to have an effect on your spouse. If you're married, it's going to have an effect on your family. It's going to have an effect on your friends in the church. It's going to have an effect on the ministry staff. It's going to have an effect on everyone. And so the lesson for us is to be cognitive, aware of how pervasive and deadly sin is. And to not trivialize sin, but to take it seriously that we may avoid it that we may remain on the mission of God together, holistically, collectively. And the only way that that happens is when each individual member is absolutely committed to watching their lives, living in the power of the Holy Spirit, avoiding sin, avoiding temptation. And if they fall and get mixed up in stuff, live confessional, repentant lives get back on track immediately. That's the lesson for us, I think, through this. Their sin had a pretty big effect, if you think about it, on the church. And <laughs> I can tell you, one of the things that's, that, that is a big-time like security alarm for me uh, as, a, as a pastor, as a lead pastor, is I, I, always, ex- I always view and exercise the threat of disqualification. Because for the minister, it takes a little less for him to get blown out and out and going back to doing whatever he was doing, flipping burgers at McDonald's. He can't be a minister anymore for a whole number of things. It's easy for a pastor, according to Scripture, to get disqualified. And so that threat of being disqualified, it's always there with me. Even when I engage in little sins and stupid little things, maybe I say something that's unholy or I I entertain some bad attitude towards someone or whatever it is, I'm thinking to myself, Dude, this could lead to this, this, and this. This is bad, but this could lead to this, this, and this. The last thing that Phil Baker, Pastor Phil, wants to be, or that you, I desire for you, is for you to become a biblical illustration of what not to do in the church. That is a huge threat for me as a pastor. I don't want to go down like, like uh, Ted Haggart in Colorado or any of these other men who have seemingly or supposedly have the Holy Spirit and power over sin. Yes, they still struggle with stuff, but have power to make right decisions in every given moment and then to completely give in to something and then to begin lying about it and dragging it into my church, bringing the whole church, my whole family under judgment and then being exposed and the disqualified and sent packing and then used as every pastor in Modesto's sermon illustration. Don't do what Pastor Phil did. The scriptures say, don't do what Ananias and Sapphira did don't they? We can't trivialize sin. We have to take it very, very serious. Even the small things, even the things that we utter from our mouths and the little attitudes and just those things. Sin is sin is sin is sin. And we've got to be careful with all of it and very aware. Now, With this said, this is not to say that the Ananias and Sapphira incident did not produce some good things, because it did. And this is ultimately because God, it's ultimately because God can take the worst case scenarios, actually he does, he takes the worst case scenarios, the ugliest things that we're capable of, that the world is capable of, that people are capable of, that Christians are capable of, he takes the worst case scenarios, the ugliest things, and he can weave something beautiful out of them. 
Does he not? All things will redound for the glory of God at some point in the future when Christ comes back, but he can take this, and, and it's ugly, and it's nasty, and it's a total warning, but he can make something good come from it. And the first good thing that we saw that came from it was fear or reverence for God, as illustrated in verses 5 and 11 of our text from last week. Now, reverence or fear for God is really, really good because it produces holiness. I mean, if you don't have a fear of God, how are you going to commit yourself to walking in holiness? Without fear, without respect for God, there's ultimately no reason to walk in holiness. There's no guidepost there. There's no motivator or whatever you want to call it. So fear produces or reverence produces holiness. Holiness is absolutely, completely necessary in the fulfillment of the church's mission. A church must be holy, must be set apart from the culture in order to effectively communicate the gospel in word and in deed, both, both of them. The gospel is a holy divine message given by a holy divine messenger. The carriers of the gospel must therefore be holy and set apart. Now listen to how the Apostle Peter put it in 1 Peter 2, 9-12. to This is amazing, an amazing text. If you want to turn there, that's fine. 1 Peter 2, 9-12. to Peter wrote, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, <laughs> wow, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The first thing that Peter says is that the number one requisite for proclaiming the gospel is that you be a holy people, the holy people that God has called you to be, empowered you to be through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And then he says in verse 10 of that text, he says, once you are not a people, but now you are God's people, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And then he says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, what? To abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. And he says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, non-believers, uh, non-Jews, whatever you want to call it, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. I mean, Peter just lays it down. As a chosen race, as a royal priesthood, as a holy nation, a people of God's own possession, why has he separated you and made you holy? Why? So that you can proclaim the excellencies of Christ who came with the gospel and called you out of darkness. Holiness is absolutely essential to the mission of the church. Without it, there's no mission. Or there's a mission going forward, but it's a confusing one. It's a very confusing mission. It's a very confusing gospel. Now, how can we effectively communicate a holy divine message, the gospel, while living and acting just like the people of this world? <laughs> we can't. In order to effectively communicate the gospel, we ourselves must be holy, set apart, and unlike those around us. We must be different. And it's 
Fear and reverence for God uh, is that that reverence and fear of God is what inspires holy living, set apart living. Is that not true? I think that's one of the primary reasons for why God judged Ananias and Sapphira the way that he did. He wanted to strike fear into the church so that the church would revere him, which would produce holiness, which would what? Keep the church on mission. Without holiness, we're not on mission, man. If we're living like the world, we're on a mission, but it's the mission of this world, right? Holiness is a, is a requisite for the mission of the church. We must be devoted to it. We must be inspired by the reverent, reverence and fear of God and live holy lives. Now, the second thing that Ananias and Sapphira, uh, the second thing that their incident brought about was purity in the church. This is seen in the second half of verse 12, where verse, the second half of it says, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. Now, all together is a tricky little phrase. Some of your translations will say uh, they were of one accord. And I think that that's a better depiction of what the author was trying to convey and communicate. All together is a tricky little phrase. It infers that everyone, the whole church, was basically at the same place, Solomon's portico. Now, this is true, but there's a way deeper meaning in the original language. It's not just a geographical location. They weren't just together in a geographical location. It's much more than that. And if you don't see this, you don't see where purity comes in. Now, check this out. All together is a reference for the, geog for the geography, but it's also a reference for the unity of their hearts and minds. As a body, immediately following the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira, the church as a whole learned by example and committed themselves to purity out of reverence and love for God. Okay, when you see it saying they're all together, it means they were all together devoted to being pure. They saw the impurity of these two, how they were judged, taken out, and they all said, we've learned our lesson. We're not going to try to bring deception and sin and those things into the church. We've seen what happens. We fear our holy God who redeemed us, who's given us the Holy Spirit and all this stuff, whatever. We are going to commit ourselves to doing what they didn't do, and that's to being pure in mind and in action. They devoted themselves to purity would be a good way to translate the last half of 12. Literally. Purity is instrumental to the mission of the church. Purity is as essential to the church's mission as soil is to plants. In order for the church to effectively engage in its mission, its members must be committed to purity personally and collectively. If the people of God trivialize sin, do not take it serious. They will allow it to perpetuate in their lives and they will bring it into the body where it spreads like a disease, causing the church to become weak, ineffective, and sometimes just plain dead. Have you ever wondered why churches come and go? A lot of times it's because that church was not committed to purity and it allowed the sins to go wild. Mark Driscoll did a sermon series on it called Christians Gone Wild. It was all based in the book of 1 Corinthians, which is, wow, what a church. 
These people were doing all kinds of crazy stuff that was happening in there. And God was warning them and warning them and judging them. And I have no doubt that some were taken out or whatever. And then you see 2 Corinthians and it's beautiful because the church started to get some of it together. You know, they started to do the right thing. We cannot trivialize sin. We cannot trivialize purity. We've got to be devoted to being pure in mind, heart, word, deed, our relationships and these things. And some would just say that's just an impossibility. Then why were you given the Holy Spirit who is absolutely pure, who calls you on your sin and junk at the moment that you're about to engage in it, during the temptation time? He's calling you to live a pure life in that moment. If it's impossible, then why do we have the Holy Spirit? Now, I get it. We slip up. But for the most part, we've got to take purity very, very serious. In our personal relationships, in the church, in our families, whatever it is, we are called to be pure. We are called to be pure. And we have been purified in a spiritual sense by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that should translate to the other areas of our lives, our physical life, our emotional life, and these things. Now, oh, incredibly, there are so many pastors in churches today that do not take purity serious. They, they don't like preaching on like holiness and purity. They don't like talking about those things. They don't like flushing them out. I've heard sermons where they get to these things in the scripture and they just kind of gloss over it and, and recontextualize it and they make it something else. And, and I don't know if they do it all in the name of God's great grace or whatever, you know, because that's usually, you know, where we lean so much as I can be impure because of the grace of God that covers me. That's all a bunch of horse patoot. No, I don't know what it is with, with pastors or why they undermine or downplay Purity. I think that the reason why is because as soon as you start talking about holiness and purity, it turns a whole lot of people off. And all of a sudden, people don't want to come to that church anymore because they're, all, they're, a bunch of, they're a bunch of judgmental people in that church because the pastor's always calling for people to walk pure lives. And sure, he's saying to live in the power of the Holy Spirit, but who the heck could do that? <laughs> you know? I, I, I honestly think that the church, yes, it's deserving of a little bit of bad publicity because... Frankly, it's made up of sinners, and we do blow things and screw stuff up. But I think it gets a lot of negative publicity in terms of speaking on purity and holiness because that's what God has commanded us to be. And that's when, when we get to the Word of God where it says those things, we're commanded to preach those things. God wants His church to be holy as He is holy. He wants it to be pure because it has been purified by the blood of Jesus Christ. But, you know, pastors, oh, as soon as we start talking about purity, our congregation drops in half. Or 30 people left week, last week, they were really ticked off. And there's a way to teach about these things, and there's a way not to, right? You don't want to be judgmental and mean. But I think the church gets a lot of negative publicity because it's constantly calling. In some circles, it's calling for people walk in purity, live in purity. Let's keep our little body here on mission. Because if we don't walk in purity and holiness, we're not on mission. And guess what? All us pastors are dealing with all of you who should know better than to do the things that you're doing. And some of us pastors are engaging in those things because we don't take purity seriously. And blah, 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 blah. And guess what? We're not on mission. Our mission has become to deal with the rescued. And that's not what Matthew 28 says at all. It says, go out and take the gospel so that I can rescue lost sinners. Instead of getting stuck in a cycle of ever eternally ministering to those who have the Holy Spirit who can make right choices. Oh, it's such a frustrating thing. 
And it's ultimately frustrating when I slip and begin to do that and to consume focus and time and everything because I have lost sight of what's right. And <laughs> another thing, man, they don't like talking about purity. They don't talk, like talking about holiness because they think it drives people away from the church. And quite frankly, it probably does. And it's supposed to drive them away. Right? We, we, we have this ideology and philosophy of church today that everyone should be in the church. And, and, and that's not to say that we don't desire for people to come hear the gospel. But there's this poisonous passion to just fill churches with everyone. And what we do is we judge how many rear ends are in chairs and how many people are coming and all this. And that's how we measure. No, a church should be measured by its holiness and its purity, not by how many people are coming. Right? Amen? May we, may we devote ourselves to counting those things and examining those things and looking at those things. It's not easy because a lot of butts and chairs stroke the ego. Whoa, we got a church that's filled. How many tares do you have in your church? And how many grains, heads of wheat do you have in your church? There are more non-believers, I believe, in churches today than there are believers. I believe it. Just look at the church. Analyze the church. Read about church history. It goes through spells and seasons where it's just filled with people who don't love Jesus, who have been invited, praise God, but they're accommodated instead of challenged to change. It happens. I'm starting to sweat. I love it. I'm just passionate about these things, man, because oh, I want to be on mission. Don't you want to be on mission? That's why we planted a church. Ah. Now, some quick yoga. Ah. Jesus yoga. I can't even get my leg up past that. That's how, the pants are about to rip. <laughs> Shouldn't sit like that anyways. Um, now, they undermine, they downplay holiness and, and purity, and, and they do the same thing with church discipline. Okay? You can go into almost any church today, and, they're, and they're, they, they, maybe it's in their constitution or in their statement of faith, but how often is it that Christians gone wild get into the churches and go ballistic and nothing's ever done? You know? There's no accountability. There's no structure. There's a... And there's actually, in the scriptures, there's a disciplinary protocol for people who get out of whack. And it's there for a reason. And first of all, God established it out of love for his own children. You know? Good parents discipline their kids because they love them. Not because they just get ticked and want to beat them. Or put them in a corner with a hat with a propeller on it. You know? Right? Discipline has been established out of God's love for his children. We exercise discipline in our own families out of love for our kids. We want to see them restored. We want to see them whole. And so discipline has been put in for love. To eliminate it, to eject discipline, is to tell your people you don't love them. Church discipline, too. Yes, it's love, but church discipline is also, I believe, the primary means by which God keeps the church on mission. Church discipline consists of several stages that are designed to help and to get disobedient members back on mission, back to being healthy and whole in the church, back 
to helping the church progress in its mission and to advance the mission of the gospel. That's why discipline is in place. Yes, it's love. Yes, it's about restoration and those things. It's about all those things. But it's also there as a cautionary measure to keep the church on mission. Why? Because when the church is impure and filled with unholiness and its Christians gone wild crazy, the church ain't on mission. It's a dang circus is what it becomes. And everyone feels good about it because there's a whole lot of people there. And it's not on mission. It's not on mission. It's got to be on mission. And, and part of that, part of the, the structure of discipline is, is a difficult one. It, you know, it's like if, if a member remains unrepentant and continues to reject the measures of discipline, to reject Christ's command, to eject, reject the authority of church leaders who are trying to help this person, if they stay unrepentant and consistently rejecting the measures, it gets all the way to the point where it culminates in removing them from the fellowship. Number one, for their own good. Because when they're removed from the fellowship, the sweetness of that fellowship goes away, and now they're just in a world that despises and hates them, ultimately. And, and now they don't have that beautiful fellowship. And quite frankly, a lot of people get so far off track, they don't want the fellowship, and they, they go when they're told to go. But ultimately, when they're removed, the focus can come back to mission. And that sounds harsh, but it's reality. And so church leaders and pastors in these churches and a lot of these mega churches and all that, man, they, 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 they don't want to talk about holiness. They don't want to talk about purity. They don't want to talk about church discipline. Why? Because they're afraid that it's going to drive people away. I recently listened to uh, an interview, and it was an older interview, between Robert Schuler Sr., yeah, right when I said that, I heard a whoa. Um, he was the big hour of power, you know, and oh, you know, and they had more glass there than the Gallo gas, glass plant, you know, or whatever, and gas plant, yeah, it was a gas plant too. Um, I mean, he was the Crystal Cathedral pastor and founding pastor, and, and you know, he was the hour of power guy, and, and I listened to this interview between him and uh, a guy named Michael Horton, who's a professor at Westminster Seminary down in SoCal. And uh, Horton talked about how repentance is essential to the gospel and how pastors must impress the truth about sin upon their hearers in love, you know, and handle the truth in a loving way. But don't hold back, man. Preach the gospel. Preach the word. Call people on their sin. Call them to repent and these things. And he talked about this stuff. He said, do it in a loving way. And then he actually recited a couple of passages that sort of correlate with the conversation or the points that he was making. He, he quoted a couple of passages that describe our, you know, sinful, depraved condition and how holiness and purity are necessary for actually seeing God and for entering into his kingdom. What a concept, right? The scripture clearly say that unholy folks and impure folks don't see God. They don't experience God physically. They don't come into the kingdom. They haven't been washed by the blood of the Lamb, and they don't care and all that. And so, guess what? You, you, if you're unholy, if you're out of Christ, you're not gonna, you'll see God, but it ain't going to be for good reasons. And so, he was talking about these things and flushing them out, and here's the other guy on the other microphone there, and he's listening, and then he gives his response, and he basically says, Schuler says this, and I'm quoting, I would never present those passages to the good people of my church. I would never call them sinners or treat them that way. 
Never. I would never treat my beloved people like that. I would never call them to repent or call them sinners or any of these things. Never, 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 never. Now, Horton was just, there was a long pause. And there was some heavy breathing. <gasps> you know? <laughs> it's weird on the radio. Right? You know? And, just, and, and there was this pause. And, and now, 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 here's the bottom line. Schuler <laughs> didn't take purity and holiness seriously. And sin ran wild in his church for years. Just as it will in any church where the leaders don't take these things serious. Attendance and giving eventually dropped because there were people in the church who were real, legitimate, transformed, new birth Christians on fire for God and they could not stand the lack of gospel-infused centered preaching. They couldn't stand the fact that everyone was treated like holier than thou and wonderful and beautiful and perfect and all that. And so there were a lot of really solid, and I don't know how they stayed in it as long as they did. I guess they just loved their church more than some of the stuff that was being communicated. I don't know. But a lot of people bounced, man. They left. And giving went down. And guess what? In 2011, they filed bankruptcy. And guess what? They lost that place. And next year, they're moving into a tiny place. It's a miracle that they still have a church. And here's the thing. Guess who bought their building? The Catholics. And now they're going to turn the Crystal Cathedral into a big, centralized Catholic worship center or something like that. Well, it can be used for the glory of God, but it can be used for a whole lot of other things if you look at Catholicism. But the point is that he did not take purity serious, would not preach the gospel and call people to repentance, didn't take it serious. Sin runs crazy in these places. And ultimately, they're judged by God. And God can take it to where you lose your lease or you lose your church or... He takes people home. I mean, there's no telling where he can go with it. It's a tragedy. Now, the Apostle Paul explained <coughs> the importance of purity in the life of the church in so many places. He knew that purity was absolutely essential to the mission of the church. And he kind of described that in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1-8. He said this, if you want to turn there, 1 Thess 4, 1 to 8. He says, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you, listen to this, know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. And here, here's where it really steps it up. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. 
Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. The passage says that the will of God is that individual believers commit themselves to purity and that each one know how to control his own or her own body and that the Holy Spirit has been given so that they may do so. You hear me? Each person has been given the Holy Spirit. Each person in Christ has been given the Holy Spirit, which is the power, which is the transforming power, the person and presence of the living God in you that you may walk in holiness and purity. Bottom line. Now, he also gives a little bit of a warning there that anyone who rejects this command, the command that he gave, rejects God rather than man. Sounds a lot like what Ananias and Sapphira did. What was told to them or what was told to Ananias? You haven't lied to man, you've lied to God, right? Sounds a little parallel there, right? And what exactly did Ananias and Sapphira do again? Here it is. They rejected some of the apostles' teaching, which were the commands of God. Obviously, they respond to the gospel in faith and repentance at some point, but some of the things that they taught, maybe about purity, holiness or purity or whatever else they talked about, we can say that they taught and broadened the gospel message when they taught. We have little glimpses of it, but ultimately they rejected some of the commands that were impressed upon them by the apostles, and they tried to bring sin and deception into the church, which caused a momentary pause in its mission. They were then exposed, judged, and put to death in a public setting by God, and their sin and deaths were used as examples to the rest of the church. How serious is God about the purity of his people? Oh, man. Acts 5, 1 to 11 shows us very vividly how serious purity is to individual members, to the collective, to the mission of the church. I really, really hope these things are sinking in, guys. Not that I'm sitting up here as some holy, rolling, perfect guy, because that's not me. But man, these truths need to, they just need to metastasize in our lives, in our hearts, that we may walk in holiness and purity, staying on mission, preserving the fellowship, caring for one another rightly, moving forward, moving forward with God as he moves forward in our community. Acts 5.11, 1 to Acts 5, 1 to 11 is an absolute display of how serious God is about the purity of his church. Now, again, back to pastors who undermine these things. Why do they do it? Why do they do what they do? I guarantee you it's out of a desire. Why do they downplay holiness and purity and church discipline and those hard things? They do it because they want to get more and more people into their churches. Yeah, they do it in the name of evangelism. It's like you have to modify the gospel is what they're doing. They're modifying God's radical call on people's lives. Repentance, faith in the person and work of Jesus. You have to modify that. You have to soften it. You have to make it seeker sensitive. And that's precisely what they're doing. That's what they are doing. They downplay sin, reducing it to a mild problem. How often do you hear of sin from the pulpit taught as 
the absolute scourge on humanity, an absolute, you know, assault on God, and the very thing that carries you unto destruction for eternity. And all these, no, it's always, we have a little bit of a sin problem. Sin is horrible. And if we, if we can't tell by looking at the cross how horrific it is, how could we ever take the image of how bad sin is on the cross and reduce it down to a little bit of a problem that we have? How many times I, I've heard that? It is horrible, man. Oh, every atrocity in the world is a product of sin. Every war, every, everything that is evil and wicked comes forth from sin. It's horrible, horrible, horrible. And so what do pastors do? They downplay. We have a little bit of a problem. We have this little bit of a sin issue that Jesus wants to help us with. Oh, my gosh. What do they do? They also cast away the scriptures that call for holiness, purity, and church discipline. They basically have removed, too, to some degree, they have removed the attributes of God that are unappealing, like his justness. If all you ever talk about is God is love and God is grace, and you never, beautiful things, but if that's all you ever talk about, you paint the wrong picture of God because he's just, he's holy, at a level that it's just uncomprehendable. You can't just talk about his love all the time. You can't just talk about his grace. You have to talk about his justness. You have to talk about the devastation that he brings upon sinners. You have to. You can't just paint a My Little Pony lollipop sucking picture of Jesus. He doesn't ride around in a cabriolet with his hair flowing back with a latte. I love everyone. Everything's great. That's not Jesus. I'm yelling. (laughs) And I'm sitting. How do you do it? What else do they do? They allow sin to go unchecked in their members and in their churches. And they, what else have they done? They've jettisoned Christ's radical call to take up the cross. Man, when Jesus preached the gospel, people fled from him. They didn't flee into his circles. They said, that's not for me. I'm out of here. And what are we doing in pulpits? Come, 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 because it's all love, grace, and my little ponies, and lollipops, and lattes, and mochas, and love. Oh, that's it? I want to be a part of that church. Why? Because I can receive all of that and still walk around in my sin and be all into porn and doing all these things, and I can bring that in, and it's okay, because, man, these people are the most tolerant people I've ever met. What a farce. What else are they doing to bring them in? They've gotten rid of all those things and they're promising all this prosperity and financial increase. Whoa. You've got a little bit of a sin problem, but if you repent, he'll give you money in your account. Ah, It's unbelievable, man. One of the biggest tragedies is that leaders and churches and people have exchanged grace for tolerance They are not the same thing. In in grace, there is a passionate desire to see people know Christ, to be restored to him. In tolerance, there's none of that. I just let you be you, and I really don't care about you. That's what tolerance says. Grace is different. I'm yelling again. Sorry. Who said that? 
<laughs> Was that you? They don't like it when I yell. My, my wife and sister-in-law, they don't like it when I yell. Bruce is like, yell, man. <laughs> Bruce wants to get up here in the spit zone. <laughs> I'm selling uh, hankies after the church for five bucks that have all the spit on it. They're anointed and they'll bless you. Uh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> They've done that. They do that in churches today. Can you believe that? Get the holy rag. It's like T.D. Jakes' sweatshop. You know, it's like, forget it. And, and you know what? You know what else churches have done? Listen to this one. Oh, my gosh. I'm going to throw a stool. <laughs> Listen to what they've done. They've removed crosses off of their campuses because they're offensive. Willow Creek. You won't find one cross on that campus, and that's one of the largest churches in the world. You kidding me? Yeah, I went there for a conference. And then I, was said, I said to someone who worked there, why, why aren't there any crosses here? Oh, those, those are offensive. Oh, it is. It is offensive. You're right. Yeah, you should get rid of it. What else have they done? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And guess what? Their strategies work because their churches are filled. But what are they filled with? They are filled with lots and lots of misled, half-hearted, lukewarm, or even unregenerate people who are in love with a North American version of Jesus. The United States Jesus. That's what they're in love with. That's what happens when you don't preach the full counsel of God's will, as it says in Acts 19 or Acts 17. Pastors are causing people to fall in love with a lesser Jesus. One who does have my little ponies and a thing above his crib. You know? Little, little loving baby Jesus who just would never, he just, the sweetest guy. That's what people are falling in love with. It's a great tragedy in the church. This form of church is the antithesis of the biblical church. It is the antithesis, the opposite, of the first century church. The first century church was devoted to sound biblical teaching, to reverence for God, to holiness, and to purity, and to the sacraments, and to all these things. Verse, here's where it gets really amazing. Verse 13 of our text today reveals that the half-hearted, the lukewarm, the fakers dared not enter the church. Look at your text. Who do you think Luke's talking about there in that little piece that says they dared not enter? It was those who had no desire to repent, to truly live for Christ, but maybe who were tempted to come in because of all the benefits of the church, to benefit from that fellowship to some degree, to maybe receive, from, remember how they were giving to one another and caring for one another, and there was this community sharing. There were a lot of people on the outside that were rather tempted to enter in for the wrong reasons with the wrong motives. And because the church was biblical, that served as a deterrent against those who would come in with the wrong motives. If that 
does not fly in the face of the church today. I don't know what does. Oh, we're obsessed with getting them into our church no matter where they're at. We undermine the gospel. We downplay sin. We promise things that we're not capable of giving. We do so much to get, you know, rear ends in pews, rear ends in chairs. That's the goal. Get them all into there, all in the name of something, maybe evangelism, a lesser Jesus. But we see in the text that the church was living biblically. It was flushing out in their lives collectively all these beautiful things. And guess what? It wasn't very inviting to those who were fakers, was it? They dared not come in. They actually feared what could happen. I know me and I know that Jesus is cool and all that, but I'm really not going to devote myself to all this and integrate into that. I love my sin, blah, 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 blah. And guess what? Those kinds of people stop right at the door. I ain't going in there. I could get killed. That's also one of the byproducts of Ananias and Sapphira, that the non-believers around saw how serious God was about purity. And then all of a sudden, their impurity was exposed, and they said, I was about to go in there next weekend to check that out. I ain't going in there because I have no intention of doing anything, really, what these other people are doing. They're crazy. Hmm, man, what a powerful text that is. These people that were half-hearted or lukewarm or faking or whatever it was, man, they would not go in. Why? Because the early church was committed to being biblical, and that was a deterrent against false motive, against those who loved their sin, who weren't interested in repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Man, that just flies in the face of modern evangelistic philosophies and practices today. In the name of Jesus, we want to get them all in there. And the only way to do that is to make it all the more appealing and to get lights that dazzle them and, you know, and to, and sin's just a little bit of a problem, Jimmy, you know, and all the undermining and seeker-sensitive horse duty. I mean, seriously. Wow. Now, the amazing thing is that the churches, the early church's biblical example was also appealing to many. Wow, look at verse 14. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Wow. Verse 14 proves that doing things biblically actually draws people into the church, causing it to grow numerically. Wow. If you just preach the gospel holistically, if you make your church gospel-centered, if you proclaim the whole counsel of God's will, guess what happens? There's people out there that are at the end of their ropes. They're done. They're broken. They're looking for an alternative. They come in. They hear the gospel. They give themselves wholeheartedly to Christ. Amazing things happen. The church grows. Wow! And what are we doing today? The opposite to get them in. When all we have to do is be biblical. Amazing. The text says that multitudes of both men and women were coming in. Multitudes signifies the fact, man, we couldn't count them all. Multitudes in the Greek means a lot. Tons of people were coming in, man. Tons of people were broken and shattered and done with life and realized their sin and these things, and they came in seeking grace, seeking salvation, seeking mercy from Jesus Christ, and they received it. And then it says in 15, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. 
the signs and wonders of the apostles gained a, an enormous amount of attention. And they got back to their ministry and started, you know, they re-engaged in their gospel-centered ministry by doing these signs and wonders that were meant to authenticate their testimonies about the resurrection. And it got crazy. People started lining the streets with sick people in hopes that even Peter's shadow, as he passed by, maybe he was on his way between the upper room and, you know, in the temple where they were going back and forth each day to, to pray and to teach. And man, they were just hoping that they lined the streets on that route. And they were just hoping that maybe my cousin Freddie would get healed by his shadow as he walked by. I mean, it's incredible what was going on. And these things that were happening were bona fide miraculous healings. These were real, authentic miracles that were taking place, not like that mumbo-jumbo you see on TV with Benny Hinn wave, you know, waving a jacket and all this stuff. I mean, these were real apostolic miracles, man, stuff that would be blowing our minds if we saw it. I mean, just people getting healed and, whoa! Peter was anointed with true divine healing power, and he used it to prove the re- that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was true in a really cool way. <laughs> The apostle who once rebuked Jesus and who denied Jesus three times and and then fled from Jesus when Jesus was arrested was now truly living and ministering like Jesus. How cool is that? If Peter's life and example, if Peter's life isn't an example of the grace and mercy of God, I don't know what is. I mean, this guy wreaked havoc amongst the disciples at times and here he is living like Christ and fulfilling his ministry as Christ fulfilled his ministry he's doing the same things preaching the gospel and healing just as Jesus had done 16 last verse the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits and they were all it says healed and the news about the revival that was going on in Jerusalem, that gospel-infused, gospel-driven, gospel-centered revival that was happening in Jerusalem spread quickly to the surrounding towns and folks started gathering up the sick and demon-possessed and bringing them to the holy city to be healed. And the apostles healed them all, it says. This would be why so many multitudes of men and women were coming into the church and being saved. I have a few questions for you as we close. The first one would be this. Do you revere God? Do you have a sense of fear in your heart over this all-powerful, mighty, amazing God who set forth all of creation by the breath of his lungs? by a series of statements and verbs and nouns and pronouns? Do you fear this God? Do you fear our God? Have you been living a holy, set-apart life in response to this fear? You've been walking in holiness? Just think to yourself for a second about that. Do you appear to be different from everyone else in the world, in your marriage, in your family, at your church, at your workplace, 
at your school? Are you different? Are you holy? Are you set apart? Have you been walking in purity? Hmm. Think about that for a moment. Some of you, maybe you have. Maybe some of you haven't. I tend to go between the two of them all day long. Pure, impure, pure, impure. It's like the cycle that just drives me up the stinking wall. I know my heart of hearts desires purity. I desire to be holy, to be used by God, to be on mission, to experience Him and the fullness of His joy, which only obedience can bring. Been walking in purity. How do you view personal sin? Is it serious to you? Do you trivialize it? Do you engage in sin and you're one of those excuse makers that just says, well, thank God for his grace? <laughs> That's a great legitimate question. I think sometimes we play that game, don't we? Well, I just foul up all the time and thank God for God's grace. can't forget how pervasive sin is. That, oh yeah, the grace of God covers over it. It's an ocean that we'd all drown in, as that song says. But at the same time, how is our sin affecting others, our church? How is it affecting the mission of God? How is it affecting our families? It's so pervasive. One of the biggest lies of the enemy is that your sin is your sin, is your sin, is your sin. It's just your little problem. So just keep it to yourself. It's not affecting anyone else. Oh, that's what he'd like for us to believe. Think to yourself right now about maybe something that you've been wrestling with. <laughs> How well do you manage your own life through the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit? I think that that should be regular practice is to keep preaching the presence and power of the Holy Spirit to you guys and to me every day I have to say that because I think so often we, we forget that we actually have power against sin in our lives. That we have the presence of the living God in us and flee, it's sin and the devil flee from him. And it's right there. And so often we live these unvictorious lives of just engaging and re-engaging and engaging and re-engaging in sin. We act powerless over it. And we're going to wrestle with it the rest of our lives. But we must remember that we have the Holy Spirit. We must be sensitive to him to listen and to respond in obedience when he commands us and calls us to do the opposite of what we're about to engage in. Why? Because sin kills. It's pervasive. It pulls us off mission. It ruins our families. It ruins our relationships. Are you a believer who is currently engaging in a, some sinful things and have managed to kind of pull a bit of an Ananias and Sapphira in that you're consuming <laughs> focus, time, people's energy, that Satan is actually using you who are filled with the Holy Spirit? You are, if you're a believer using you to distract from the mission of the church. I told you earlier my thoughts on that for me. That's a horrifying thing to me. 
Have I done that at times? I believe so. But where are you at right now with that? I, <laughs> I think if you were to look at any genuine believer and look them in the eyes, none of them would want to distract from the mission of the church. May we have a holy fear that our sin is pervasive and causes and creates that, that we may abstain from it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Lastly, are you a faker? Meaning, you like hanging around and coming to this thing once in a while and hearing sermons and hanging out with nice, kind, generous people, but you really don't have any desire to turn from your sin and to place your faith and trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The early church created and generated fear in the lives of people who were faking it. Is that what we're supposed to do? I suppose. I think the Word of God does that itself. But if you're a faker today, you don't have to remain a faker. The invitation of the gospel is to you. You've heard what God desires for His church and of people. Not just of His church, but He calls all people to repentance. That's what the Scripture teaches. Not all of them get saved, but the command to repent goes out to the world. Are you one of those today? It's on the inside, but on, in your soul, you're on the outside. Repent of your sin. Trust in Jesus Christ. Join into the fellowship in a real way. Experience His salvation, His grace, His mercies, His joy, His power, His presence. Repent. Trust in Christ. One of the greatest deterrents against sin, against personal sin, is what I call holy distraction. Holy distraction means, and really this goes out to the believers, but holy distraction means to be captivated by God and the mission of the church to the point of being distracted away from sin. If your time is spent in God's word and in God's will, advancing the gospel, you're in this mission with the church, this mission that God has ordained, that he's leading, and you're with him. You're like a character that has been cast in his ginormous story that's bigger and better than all other stories in the world. It's awesome. It's bigger than a meta-narrative. It's amazing. You're in that thing. You don't have time to think about doing all these other little things. Because you're captivated by a beautiful, loving God and you're captivated by His story and you're captivated and enthralled with His mission. 